0: Welcome to Practical Theology, a podcast series by Battle Creek Friends Church. Our hope is that by listening, you feel equipped in your faith to speak out in confidence about what you believe and live it out. We're here to help you seek the Lord throughout your day. So here's your host, Bible teacher, father, husband, and guy who likes cookies, Leo Wilson. Hello and welcome to episode four of Practical Theology. Today's topic, God in Positions of Leadership, part three. We started this study by looking at Romans chapter 13. And in that, we see that God appoints leaders and calls them his servants. And he also says, as they're his servants, we ought to obey them as Christians. We ought to give them respect. He even says here, for rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? then do what is right and you will be commended for the one in authority is God's servant for your good but if you do wrong be afraid for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason they are God's servants agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer therefore it is necessary to submit to the authorities not only because of possible punishment but also as a matter of conscience so here we see God is saying that there is servants he's appointed them and we have a role in that but it brought three questions about the first one was, does God really directly appoint these people? In all cases, are they all his servants, even people who would maybe be non-Christian? And we saw that with ex- examples from Isaiah and Jeremiah appointing Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, for example, and how he was going to achieve God's purposes. We'll talk more about that later in this episode. The second question we answered was, okay, are there ways that God does this? Like, how does it affect us? Is, is it part of our role And we looked at the example of Saul being appointed when he was introduced to Samuel by God. And we saw how God organized those events in one sense to introduce Saul to Samuel. And then notice that God gave the people exactly what they wanted, even though he didn't necessarily want Saul to be king. So he actually blessed the people in one sense by giving him a king, blessing him with the spirit and allowing him to start delivering them from the Philistines. But on the exact same time, He's using it as an example to the people to discipline them. Paul isn't a godly leader. Um, he's not what God would want. He wasn't after God's own heart, and we talked about that in the last episode. Well, then it brings us to our third question. Well, what exactly is our role, given that God appoints leaders, and how do we act this out? Do we see biblical examples of what our role is? And we do, and we're going to share some of those today. The first one we're going to look at is out of verse 2 of Romans 13, when it talks about whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, what does rebel mean? There's an example in Scripture out of Galatians 2, 11 through fourteen, where Peter and Paul are having a disagreement about circumcision and the idea of salvation. You know, eating with sinners. And I want to read that to you, but I want us to listen to how they interact with one another. I'm not interested in theology of like circumcision or the you know um, salvation, but as much as how are they interacting? The difference of rebelling versus dealing with problems. When Cephas came to Antioch, Cephas is Peter, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that their hypocrisy, even Barnabas, was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? So what I want to point out there is the difference of rebellion versus healthy confrontation. The interaction between Peter and Paul is to recover truth. And Paul starts asking Peter questions like, Why are you doing it like this? Some of these are very direct questions. Some of these might even make Peter look bad, but they're they're not rude. They're not disrespecting Peter as a person. They're challenging Peter's belief. And that's very healthy, given that this is found in scripture. We see that when it comes to God's truth, when it comes to important things, it's okay to ask questions. Both of these men are positions of leadership. They need to respect one another, but it doesn't mean they have to just bow down and listen to whatever the other one says and do it. And, and this is important for us Christians. We can disagree with people in leadership, but yet still respect them. So this comes to like, for example, anybody that's a leader in our country, senators, representatives, governors, presidents, any of those positions need to respect one another because they are all elected officials. They are all people that are representing our needs as citizens, but also appointed by God. So no one's exempt from this. We need to still respect and not rebel. We need to listen and discuss our differences. And even when leaders do this and they're disrespectful and they're name-calling, this is wrong. We shouldn't be doing these things, nor should we teach our children to do these things. We should set an example. We should treat them respectfully, but we can talk about why we disagree. Okay, there's another situation that comes up. And this comes out of uh, Acts 22.22. Paul is addressing people, and they're not happy, and they actually say he's worth death, like you should kill him. Well, then Paul understands the situation, and the Romans that arrested him didn't understand. They they didn't know that they were arresting a Roman citizen, and with that, Paul had certain rights. Well, anyway, Paul makes the best of the situation, and he goes into Acts 23, and he says this. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, "'My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience this day.'" At this, the high priest Ananias ordered that those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, how dare you insult God's high priest? Listen to this here. Paul replied, brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest, for it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, called out to the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. Okay, two things there. Paul was striked on the mouth for saying something and probably pretty upset because he wasn't wrong. He was honoring God. And so he replied back, talking about how terrible the person was that ordered him to be stricken. But then He is told that that was the high priest and Paul repents. You can hear it in in the wording that he is sorry. He didn't realize that because it is written. He knows what scripture says about this. You're not supposed to speak evil about the ruler of your people. So Paul sets a great example there in one sense. He says, oh, that was a mistake. I should not have done that. It's a lesson that we should learn. The second thing I like that Paul does is recovers pretty quickly and goes right to the topic. He's he, no longer talking about the person. Let's talk about the issue at hand, which is very mature and responsible. Instead of pointing out the person and what you think about them or their character or what they did wrong, talk about the issue. It's a great point. So let's look at something a little different. Let's look at what does it take to make a good leader when people have responsibilities to vote, for example, or options to choose leaders. What can we use as a means of determining who's the right leader, who's a good leader and who's a bad leader, looking historically. Now I want to look at the example of Solomon. Solomon was very wise, right? One of the wisest men that ever lived, one of the richest men that ever lived. And in his account in 1 Kings chapter 3, um, God and him are having a conversation. And Solomon says, "'Lord, I want to be your servant of this great people, but I can't do it. And I really wish that you would help me be a great servant.'" And God is impressed and says, you know, Solomon, because you haven't asked for riches or power or to defeat your enemies, but for the wisdom to lead your people, I will give you all of these things. And Solomon is an amazing leader. People come from all over the world to hear the wisdom of Solomon. People come to him for just decisions. He is leading his people not only in a just way, but he is prospering that country. Buildings, wealth are pouring into Israel and from many definitions, even to modern-day standards, he was amazingly successful. And yet, there was another problem. In First in Kings 11, verses 1 through 8, you hear this about Solomon. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because you will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all of his foreign wives, who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. One, That is not a good thing to have said about you. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. This is a common thing. Whenever God's going through scripture and talking about kings, you usually hear a summary of this person did good or this person did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And almost always the context of that verse is what they did with places of worship, what they did with the people and how they set them up to worship. It is really sad to think that Solomon did all these amazing things. And in the end, when he was done, he had a bunch of false gods in front of his people. Well, how big of a deal is that, Leo? I mean, we know that worshiping other gods is bad. God says it, but maybe there's a deeper fallout of that. And I shouldn't even have to explain this, but I think just to make additional points, we just see how bad it is. It helps us uh, reaffirm the decision of this. In, Kings, in 2 Kings 3.27, it mentions Misha, king of Moab. And after he's defeated, he sacrifices to the god Chemosh, Um, his son on the wall. And this is the same one that just as we read about Solomon that he built the altar for and were able to burn sacrifices to. A God who apparently you worship by making human sacrifices. That's significant. I think it's obvious that worshiping false gods is bad, but when we start to see the fallout of it, here in Solomon's time, he put up places of worship of gods who took human sacrifices, who people practiced by sacrificing people. that is horrible. And the biggest problem with it is it shows a devalue of God's created human life. We are God's creation. God loves us and if there's if you can see like all the great things in balance with just doing these places of worship that are against God, all of the stuff that Solomon did that was great was really for nothing. in the end, he hindered his people's relationship with their God. Well, let's look at a positive example here. In 2 Kings 21-22, by the way, this is one of my favorite examples in Scripture, King Josiah, who is eight years old when he takes office, um, very young, obviously, uh, but he is one of the ones that is given a positive statement. And we'll read this. But what, how he gets to this point is he finds the book of the law. When he becomes the age of 26, somebody comes up to him and says hey we found this bible this book of the law in one of the repositories back there and he reads it and he's like oh man we have not been doing what is right and he is he tears his robes like he's like he realizes how bad this is that's a symbol of deep repentance when you tear your robes and it says this in verse uh, 21 through 25 of chapter 23. The king gave this order to all the people celebrate the Passover to the Lord your God, as it is written in the book of the covenant. Neither in the days of the judges who led Israel, nor in the days of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah, had any such Passover been observed. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, the, this Passover was celebrated to the Lord in Jerusalem. Furthermore, Josiah got rid of the mediums and the spiritists, the household gods, the idols, and all other detestable things seen in Judah and Jerusalem. This he did to fulfill the requirements of the law written in the book that Hilkiah, the priest, had discovered in the temple of the Lord. Neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his strength in accordance with all the law of Moses. What a great compliment to sit there and say, no one has turned to God like he did. And I like how it throws in the, with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his strength, right? The the Shema prayer. And that is, that is significant. That's a deep honor. The author of this showed honor to Josiah about how much he did and how much he fulfilled the great commandment of God. Well, we have a responsibility in our communities to set up a community, a country, a state that would help our brothers and sisters, come into a more devoted relationship with Christ. And one way that we look at this is um, through our churches and through our appointed leaders, our governing authorities. But how do we do that? How do we pick them? Well, 1 Timothy chapter 3 gives us examples about how to, how to pick church leaders. And as much as I know, a, you know a worldly leader isn't the same as a church leader, I think there are still things we can glean from this these descriptions here of a leader. So here we go. Now, the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, and able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of all res- of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. Two different positions here, the overseer and the deacon. Both talk about character in some sense, but I also like what they talk about with history of the person, the character of the person, not based on an instant interview, but based on talking to people in the community, finding out what that person's past is like, looking at his family because that's a big part of his past and seeing how they were brought up. I think that's one key indicator for us. If we really want to know how to vote for somebody, we don't look at just their platform and what they're showing in their little pamphlet about what they believe. We look at what their history has shown us about who they are. That'll show what they really believed in and have lived out. I think that's a strong indicator about who to vote for. The ultimate goal with leadership in a Christian perspective then is this. You want to set up a place in a world where we can help our children, our brothers and sisters follow God. And that would mean all the things from freedom to worship to a laws that facilitate worship and hinder people from um, doing ungodly things if we can establish those things. And all those will just, in the end, the primary goal is to help people see more of God. Okay, Leo, I understand that part, but that maybe that doesn't help us in 2020, right? Uh, both sides, we, we dislike the other one so greatly, it appears like, from looking at social media accounts and everything else. What do we do when an evil dictator takes the throne, for example? Or what do we do if it's just the worst kind of deal where the leader just is deplorable? Whatever you want to say for this. What we're doing is painting a bad picture. What do we do then? Well, let's go back to what we talked about with Jeremiah and Nebuchadnezzar and the king of Babylon, right? Israel was not doing good. God had warned them upon warned them upon warned them and they didn't repent. They didn't turn around. So Jeremiah, the prophet, comes and tells them this repeatedly, and they don't listen. And Jeremiah, known as the weeping prophet, because he's so sad about what his people are about to go through. No one turns to, Jer- to God on Jeremiah's watch. They just don't listen. They, they hear what they want to hear, not what truth is. So finally, God, who has Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, as his servant, sends him to take away Israel. And he tells the Israelites, you're going to go away. And you're going to go to Babylon. And Jeremiah passes on the message that you're going to go there. You're going to be there for 70 years. Don't fight him. Go there. Plant gardens. Establish households. Have children. Um, but, But good news, you'll return. So do the right things while you're over there. Well, some people don't want to go. They don't like the idea. They're upset about losing their homeland. They decide to go to Egypt. That doesn't go so well. Other ones want to fight. That doesn't go so well for them either. In the end, Going back to Romans 13, what God says, what he told them through his prophet Jeremiah, um, as a follower of God, you should follow the established leadership of God. Well, think about this. Now, this is a sad deal. I understand that. But also, people get so discouraged about when, when leadership is not good that they think all hope is lost. But that's not the case. Look at Daniel and his three friends, right? Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. They prosper in Babylon, at least to a worldly sense, they get into positions of leadership. They are able to set good examples for people. They're recorded in scripture as being godly people, following them. Sure, they have struggles. They they don't follow all the laws. And we talked about this moral conflict and ethics. And we'll talk more about that in another episode. But we talked about the idea that, um, look, you follow the leader, but secondly to God. God's all of God's laws, all of God's laws take precedence over anything that a worldly ruler would say. And Daniel and his three friends hold to this, right? The idea that they won't bow down to an idol of the king, a gold idol. Um, Daniel gets thrown into the lion's den. Nebuchadnezzar talks to Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego and says, you're going to bow to me? And they say no. And they get thrown into the fiery furnace and they all get delivered from that. They have a thing where they're supposed to eat certain foods and they're like, no, we're not supposed to. Those are unclean and they prosper through that. They they are looking in great health through that. So following God's rules and listening to the leader of the time and even going through conflicts, they are delivered time and time again and they look great. They are they are thriving in this area where it seems to be discouraging. So there gives us hope in this idea of like, oh, man, I don't know. This is going to be terrible. This is going to become such and such a political situation. Yes, but it doesn't change the fact that you need to follow God's laws. And not only through that, you can honor God and bring more people to God in doing so. There's a story about a guy by the name of Brother Yun. He's a a person who lives in China, and he became a Christian, and he was a strong evangelist for Christ. He loved God, and being a Christian is oppressed in China, and it was against the law, especially if you were teaching people in such a way to you know, circumvent maybe things that the government would teach because God's laws once again still take precedence. Well, he found himself arrested several times. And one time he was thrown into a prison and it was a terrible prison. Uh it was not it did not treat people well. China's laws are not the same as America's laws. Um it was uh vile. It smelled of feces constantly. And brother yun was in the situation, he's like, man, and so he told the guards, he's like, hey, I'll bring honor to you and this prison. You know, because this place looks like a dump. If your leaders come in here, they're going to think that you're doing a terrible job. Let me clean it. Give me soap and a bucket of water and I will clean this whole thing for you. And you can take the honor for it. And they do it. They're like, go ahead. So he starts cleaning it up and he cleans it up and he cleans up. He's cleaning up other cells. And while he's in other cells, he's witnessing to people. He's glorifying God and other people are coming to Christ on his watch and then one of his friends from outside the prison sneaks into the prison to see him. And he comes and he knows this is a horrible place. He knows the conditions, the living conditions. And he sees his friend and his friend looks healthy and clean. And he says, you you, you look healthy. You look good. You smell like soap. And he goes, I know. And he tells him the story that I just told you about how God gave him these opportunities. He saw by serving the leaders in his, in his prison that he would be able to do something and he was able to evangelize. He was able to bring honor to them. He showed some of these leaders, these, these wardens inside the, uh, inside the prison, like what it meant to have this difference about him that was God. And he brought about a great revival to the people in China there, to the people in that prison. So that's the lesson that we should learn from that. Whatever our situation is, whether or not we think it's oppressive in the leadership or if we think it's a blessing we should always remember that we need to follow them and that through that we have one goal and that is to honor God. That's our practical point for the day. Through whatever situation we find ourselves in politically with leadership in life and who's leading us, we need to strive to always find how to follow that person while honoring God. So until next time, go and live it out.